All right, lesson 12. We have entitled this lesson, The Final Judgments and the Millennial Reign of Christ. This is critical because we live in a generation right now that not only is in love with lawlessness, it also hates judgment. And you're all Americans or have lived in America long enough to recognize we don't want to judge anything, especially ourselves. Now, maybe not you and I, but our culture as a whole. And uh, we've all heard the expression, who am I to judge? Which was propagated by a deviant, demonized psychologist named Carl Rogers. That is his key phrase from the late 50s from his psychological theory called unconditional positive regard. This demon-possessed, sexual pervert of a psychologist taught America not to judge. And most anthropologists and social scientists agree that his philosophies fed the hippie movement of the 60s, and it's still with us today. So never say, well, who am I to judge? Because that makes you a disciple of Carl Rogers. That man had an affair on his wife while she was dying of cancer and then dabbled in the occult trying to contact her after she died, wanting to apologize to her. He even said of all the, the ESP and all the New Age demonology, he said maybe that's the next step in human rev uh, evolution and we need to study that more scientists. That's Carl Rogers. And he's the one who taught us, who am I to judge? I'll tell you who I am. I'm a born-again believer. I walk with Jesus Christ, and I have the eternal word of God called the Bible, published in almost every language, and I have about 30 copies of it in my home. I am a good judge. But there is one great and a righteous judge who we serve, and he's going to judge everything. He's even judging us right now, and he promised to do so, but he also taught us that we should judge ourselves, and if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. We all are familiar with that passage. So the final judgments and then the millennial reign of Christ. And then next week's lesson will be an overall timeline of the seven years of tribulation, which was a very daunting task for me to try to undertake because so much of it is just very nuanced and not nailed down. And so there again, we reserve any right to disagree with anything I wrote in that lesson. And if I'm wrong, I'm wrong by less than seven years because it's all just within a seven-year period. So that's my asterisk of caveat and condition. So, and if I'm wrong, we get to heaven, you won't be upset anyway. It's not like you're going to hunt me down when we get to heaven and say, you're going to say, um, I'm just glad we're here. <laughs> Amen. So let's look at our first verse, 2 Timothy 4.8. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, look at that, the righteous judge shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. We need to know that the Lord God is the righteous judge. That is one of his personalities. That's one of his facets, one of his traits. We cannot escape it. He is a judge, and he does judge all things. All of life is heading towards an ultimate judgment showdown where we will stand before God and every knee will bow. Eternal judgment is one of the six principles of Christ's doctrine. You don't hear the six principles of the doctrine of Christ taught in many churches anymore. And I've made the observation it may be that most pastors or preachers don't know them. But one of those six core uh, doctrines is eternal judgment. And that's why we need to understand it. Used to, every Christian believed in eternal judgment. And everybody had this, you know, we have this love for God and then we understand God's love for us. But there was this, this fear, a reverential fear that says, I'm going to answer for that one day. We used to all have that in our conscience, 
in our soul because we were taught it on a regular basis. But with the, with the psychology revolution of the 50s and 60s and the feel-good revolution of the 70s and 80s and then the seeker-friendly movement of the 90s and 2000s, we're not taught about eternal judgment and eternal retribution and rewards and punishments. So now we just want to be us and be free and then come to church and be told how wonderful we are. But there used to be a doctrine that Jesus Christ propagated called eternal judgment. And then Paul came along and confirmed it. And the revelation confirmed it. We have to keep that doctrine alive because it is a principal doctrine of Christ. Amen. All of time in creation is headed toward a final judgment day. The Bible teaches that every human being will answer to God, yet all judgment has been given to Jesus Christ, and he will judge without respect of persons. And so even though it's all going to answer to God, it is Jesus Christ who is the righteous judge. Jesus Christ said there in John 5, 27, he hath given him, Jesus Christ, authority to execute judgment also because he is the son of man. We see Jesus Christ says, all judgment's been given to me. It all answered to Jesus Christ. And because he was able to come and redeem us and walk things out as a man and then be a merciful high priest, we'll all be without excuse, even the pagans, because Jesus Christ will say, I made a way for you. I believe, and you can disagree, I believe Jesus Christ is given the judgment because he's that merciful high priest. And if he's going to judge, he'll lean towards mercy Having walked through life as a man, as Hebrews says, being born after the seed of Abraham, he took on him the form, not of angels, but of man, and was tempted in all points like as we yet without sin. Therefore, we have a merciful high priest. Judgment's given to him because he'll, he'll be merciful, but he'll still cast billions to hell in mercy. That's with an eye of mercy because it's either you receive Jesus Christ or you're damned. There, there's no middle ground. There, there's no, what do the Catholics call it? Purgatory. There's no place where the, the Pac-Man eyeballs go back to regenerate. No, that doesn't happen. You go to hell or you go to be with Jesus Christ. That's it. Amen. Acts 10.42, he commanded us to preach unto the people and to testify that he is, excuse me, that it is he which was ordained of God to be the judge of quick and dead. Notice that's, that's part of the gospel message. The disciples are saying he, this is Peter preaching, he commanded us to go and preach. And what was the gospel message? Preach that Jesus Christ is he that is ordained to judge. That's part of the gospel message. Every time we're preaching the gospel, the apostles were telling folks, Jesus Christ is the son of God and he's been ordained to judge the quick and the dead. You don't hear that in the gospel message much anymore. Look at that verse again. Peter speaking, he commanded us to preach unto the people, all right? So what's the message Jesus Christ told them to preach? And to testify that it is he, Jesus, which was ordained of God to be the judge of quick and dead. Part of our gospel message is to know that Jesus Christ is a judge. And he's gonna judge the quick and the dead. The word quick is just a King James word for alive. The alive means those that are alive unto God. The dead meaning those that are dead spiritually, not just those that have a body and those that don't have a body. We're talking about spiritual life and death. Judgment is appointed to all of us, and he will judge both the quick, which is the saved, and the dead, and that is the unsaved. So let's look at this. The first judgment we see is the judgment seat of Christ. And so we're going to cover the final judgments here, and I guarantee you you're going to learn some stuff this morning, even those of you that are good on eschatology, because I read a bunch of books, and I learned a lot of stuff that I didn't even know was even considered doctrine. And... Uh, 
So if you're weary of it, I understand because you've never heard this stuff before. So be like the Bereans and go search it out. I, I usually give you the scriptures to search out for yourself and we can see what the, the word of God has to say on this. The judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ is the place of judgment for all believers. This is where we will be judged. This is where you and I are headed. And we're going to answer to Jesus Christ there. 2 Corinthians 5.10, New American Standard says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Notice that this does not determine our eternal salvation, but this determines rewards based on what we've done in, the bio, in our body, good or bad. That means there's some things apparently given to you for the bad that you've done, because we're going to answer for both. Now, this is teaching that has to go out on a regular basis because it will help us to humbly and fearfully walk before the Lord and have a, a thing in the back of our mind saying, I don't want to do this. I'm going to have to answer for this one day. That's dumb. We need that kind of conscious self-check. And the scriptures give us faith for that. Romans 14, 10, and 12 say, But why dost thou judge thy brother, or why dost thou set it not, despise, make of no account thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. There's another reference from Paul about the judgment seat of Christ. He's saying, you know, why are you judging your brother to set him at naught? It's not saying you can't judge, but judging with the intention of despising him. He said, don't you realize we're all going to be judged one day? So how about some more mercy here? See, one of the things, we're, we're all commanded to judge, but when we judge, we ought to also fall back on mercy. I have found just through several cycles of judgment in my life and cycles of judgment I've seen God do upon others. I've even prayed the judgment of God on people. You find that judgment must give birth, and as soon as somebody's judged, then you'll find the Spirit of God shifts sails and begins to intercede for mercy. The judgment of God was coming towards Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham began to intercede for mercy. And you see that over and over again. Judgment must happen, and as soon as it drops, so you, if, you're, if your heart's right with God, you start looking for mercy. Lord, let him have mercy. David was judged over and over again. He knew he was wrong. Have mercy. But it's like judgment must give birth because somebody can't see the dumb in their life or the rebellion in their life. The hammer drops then mercy, then the, it's, the judgment's relieved, the tension's relieved, the, it's, it's expressed, and now God's spirit begins to look for mercy. And so why, we, we can judge one another, but not to count condemnation, not to damnation, not to despise. We can, I can judge and say, uh, a chase is in sin. But they, with the result, once I judge, the finally he's in sin, what am I going to do with that judgment? Am I going to have mercy on him? Am I going to make intercession for him? Am I going to go to him and try to restore him? The heart, what makes judgment wrong for the Christian is what we do with it once we've done it. What's the heart behind it? Are we judging Mr. Rick so we can be better than him? Or are we judging Mr. Rick so we can help him? So I try to just throw that out there for the balanced approach on judgment. Every believer will stand before this judgment seat. The good news is this judgment does not decide eternal salvation. Hallelujah. The bad news is it does decide our eternal rewards. And these rewards are based upon the works we do for Jesus after we have obtained salvation through faith. Now, just because we're doing, quote, good works doesn't mean there's rewards for them. 
We understand that there has to be a recipe in our heart of faith and joy. We learn that very early in the Bible from Genesis, from Cain and Abel's offering. And Abel brought forth, truthfully, an offering that was much more difficult to produce. Excuse me, Cain's offering was much more difficult to produce than Abel's. Abel produced sheep. Well, Abel didn't. The sheep produced sheep. And then Abel just said, that's a good looking one and presented it to the Lord. Cain's was all this work, toiling and tilling and watering and irrigation. He's the first farmer, so he's pioneering everything. And the Lord had just said, it's going to be miserable and hard work and thorns and thistles. And he's produced a wonderful bounty of fruit. And he presents it to the Lord and the Lord rejects it. Much more work went into his offering than two little sheep having a baby sheep and you present that sheep to the Lord. But the Lord said why he didn't accept it, because it wasn't done joyfully. It wasn't done with the right heart. It wasn't done uh, as unto the Lord. And so it was rejected. Just because we're doing good works, just because we're working our fingers to the bone in the kingdom for Jesus Christ does not mean there will be rewards for it. Because it all comes back to the heart. Do we do it in love? Do we do it joyfully? Do we do it with respect unto the house of God? Or are we doing it for show? If you were here Wednesday night, we talked about Martha and how Jesus Christ nailed her and criticized her ministry of helps. And he said, you are worrisome. You're troubled about. And we said, the Greek says that you are only concerned about this for your own selfish ambitions. And he publicly, in a sense, rebuked her for her ministry of helps. He, so he, the Bible says she was a deaconess. And yet Jesus Christ rebukes her in front of everybody because he says, you only do this out of selfish ambition. That's why you're worried about Mary sitting at my feet. You're not worried about your heart towards me. And so we see that just because we're doing good works doesn't mean they're accepted before Jesus Christ. We need to get a hold of that so that we have more rewards in heaven. Just because you give a big offering, as Jesus testified in the Gospels, doesn't mean the Lord accepts it. They gave out of their abundance. The widow gave one mite or two mites. She gave out of her poverty. And the Lord had more respect unto her. She had a bigger reward in heaven than all their, the Pharisees' abundance. So keep that in mind. Uh, look at the next verse here, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Now, if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, which is straw, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it. Notice, every man's work shall be made manifest. Because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Notice, it's just work. Work, 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 work. But the fire proves what kind of work it was. The only thing that's the difference is the heart behind it. And the previous part of the verse says there's gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, stubble. What happens when you put gold and silver and precious stones in a fire? Do they come out the same? Oh, they'll think about it. I mean, do they burn up? No. What about wood, hay, straw? What happens when you put those in the fire? Ashes. So they're all called works, but what makes a work golden is your heart. What makes a, word, a work silver is your heart behind it, your motive behind it. What makes a good work a precious stone is your heart behind it. What makes a good work in the house of God wood, hay, or straw is your heart behind it. And it all looks the same outwardly now, but the day shall declare it when we stand before God in his flaming fire. And some folks will realize they really didn't do much for God their whole life, though they worked in the house of God to the day they died. Other folks will feel like they didn't do much for the house of God, but they prayed a lot at home, or maybe they cared for folks at home because they weren't able to get out, and they'll find they have more rewards. 
So again, the difference is our heart in what we're doing. That's why we're always talking about our heart and tweaking our heart and making sure our heart is right before God in everything we do for him. You can witness to somebody, which is an awesome work, but do it to show off. They get born again, you get nothing. (laughs) You could cast the devil out of somebody and do it with an air of arrogance to show off. They get free and rejoice in Jesus and go on to become a great evangelist and you get nothing. Or you can give a cup of water in the name of a man of God and it's just a cup of water and you have a tremendous reward for it. Or you could help somebody uh, open the door for somebody and say, bless you in the name of the Lord. And nobody see it but you and the widow and you have a tremendous reward for it. Have more reward for it than the man that gave a million dollar offering publicly. I don't like it when people testify publicly how much they're giving in offerings. It grieves me. It's showboating. It violates scripture. And I've been in many offerings where people want to testify how much they were giving. Well, you have your reward. I recently had somebody ask me how much you're giving. How much are you giving? As much as my heart determines to give. I was in a meeting one time years ago, and they auctioned off the offering. How many will give 500 in this? And I was like, no. And uh, in the end, the gentleman finally said, well, that leaves us of a budget of 1,000. I guess I'll make that check out. So he said, how do you spell 1,000? And I wanted to say, I was right there, I, wanted, I didn't, I almost did, I didn't. I, I, I want to say, you spell thousand, thou sin. Okay, I want rewards in heaven. If everybody knows what I did yesterday, that is my reward. Amen. That's what these passages are talking about. We don't understand this because we, we don't study judgment much. Because we live in the day when we say, who am I to judge? You're a Christian authorized by Jesus Christ. And you've got to begin with yourself. You've got to begin by judging yourself, your heart, your motives. You've got to begin by judging, why, why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? Why do I show up for church? Why do I study my Bible? Why? Why? I want to make sure it's unto Jesus Christ. Because the day shall declare it. The gentleman who gave the $1,000 offering, that's a great offering. And we ought to all believe to give those offerings. That was his reward that day, to show off in that meeting. Okay. Uh, some of you don't like that. I don't know why. I'm trying, we're talking, see, this is why we don't teach on eternal judgment, because nobody likes it. I could bend you over and blow smoke up your tailpipe. And make you feel good about your fake walk with God. Or we could teach you the word of God and bring light to a situation. Okay. The fire shall try every man's work. That's every one of us, everything we've ever done in the name of Jesus. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man, so that lets us know there's some works that will not abide. We want to improve upon those works now. The wonderful news is we still have breath in our lungs, the word of God in our heart. We can continue. We're not dead yet. We can continue to build up rewards in heaven. There is a day when all of us will die on planet earth if the rapture doesn't take us. We have time. It's almost like an eternal 401k. You still have time to invest in heaven for your eternal retirement, if we can call it that. So we teach on these things so that we can continue to to store up for ourselves, as Jesus Christ said, treasures in heaven. And if we teach on the heart behind it, 
like Paul said, I want to make sure you're the reward I have in heaven, that you have a glorious day when you get there. I think there's going to be a lot of Christians in heaven that want to protest with pitchforks and torches at their preacher. You lied to me, preacher. You got me here, but there's nothing for me here. Why didn't you tell me the truth? We want to make sure you get to heaven and you're thankful when you get there. And you're not just missing hell, but you got rewards. And you're able to see uh, some victory in the millennial reign of Christ. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. Notice, even in heaven, you'll get to a place where you do suffer loss. I think we will all suffer loss in heaven. Because there's just things we've done for the kingdom that they weren't right. They were a right work, but our heart wasn't right. That's why we always talk about our heart. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. We're still going to heaven. Some of the works aren't. Because <laughs> the heart behind it was soft. It's the equivalent of, a, of an offering with a bad attitude. It's the equivalent of an offering, but with a blind eye. You know, it has a blind lamb or a lame lamb or a bruised uh, uh, wheat or whatever the thing is that they would offer under the Old Testament. Every Christian's work will be tried by the fire of God to see what sort it is. Let's try that now. Every time we're doing something for God, we say, what sort is this? Why am I even here? Why am I, do I have a good heart in this? And we've, we all understand our heart can vacillate on, in one day. And we're excited about church this morning, and then this afternoon we wake up from our nap. I don't want to go to church tonight. It's dumb. I just want to take a nap. I'm sleepy. I'm groggy. You had a wonderful heart in the morning, and then something happened after nap time. Something changed in your heart while you slept. Who knows what? You got to get it right and come to the house of God. Now, all of our works will be, excuse me, not all of our works will be rewarded. Some of our works will be found, uh, found to be wood, hay, and straw. Faith and joy are two necessary ingredients to change works into biblical good works, worthy of a reward. We want to make sure these things are worthy of a reward. Otherwise, it was wasted time. It did something. Somebody was blessed by it, but it was a waste of our time, maybe even a waste of our money. Maybe a waste of our energy, a waste of a late night. Just get your heart tweaked so that there's something in heaven when you get there. The rewards will then be distributed in proportion to our faith and faithfulness in this life. Luke 19 says, And he said to them, Well, thou good servant, because thou hast been faithful in very little, have thou authority over ten cities. Notice that we are rewarded just because we did a, a good lasagna with a good heart to help a new mom and that was a good work. That the, the reward we have for that lasagna may be a lot bigger than just heavenly lasagna rewarded back to us. It's going to be something spiritual. It might be 10 cities. What is this 10 cities for, Lord? Remember that time you made the lasagna for the widow who had just lost her husband and her world was falling apart and I spoke to you and said her favorite meal is lasagna and you got up at midnight and you joyfully crying went to Walmart, bought the ingredients and you made sure she had lunch. Yeah, that changed my daughter's heart and for that I give you 10 cities. Well, it's just lasagna, it was nothing. No, I judged it eternally and it was way more than nothing but just lasagna. It was worth 10 cities. We don't know how this thing will pan out. That's why we keep serving as unto the Lord joyfully. I don't, and listen, we live in a religious region, so it's very easy to hear the word of God and do things religiously and have no heart behind it. We get to heaven and there'll be no rewards for it. And you'll say, but I was a Sunday school teacher for 25 years and there'll be no reward for it. But Lord, all I did was at the very end, I went evangelizing and then the trumpet blew and you called me up here. Well, yeah, there's a parable that talks about the guy that worked at the very end of the day and got the same reward as everybody else. 
Amen. This is way more teaching than we can cover because I still have to cover the judgment of the nations, the great right throne of judgment and the judgment of Israel. But I guess we're pastoring a little bit this morning and some of you have already had your feathers ruffled in Sunday school. Wow. All right. We will not stand at the judgment seat of Christ upon death. We're not going to stand there when we die. We will stand there, though. Instead, all Christians will appear here at one time, sometime after the rapture, but before the wedding supper of the Lamb and the return of the Lord with his armies. Nobody really is in the same page. Nobody really agrees on when this takes place. Some people believe it is at the rapture. Some people believe maybe it's after the rapture and in heaven. But we know this, 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes. So now we're talking about his coming for us who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts. And then shall every man have praise of God. So this is talking about a judgment that people have praise in that has to be the judgment seat of Christ because some things burn up, but some things are rewarded. This is also written to the church. This is not the general judgment of God, but the judgment seat of Christ. It happens when he comes. It doesn't happen if you were to die today. You're not standing before the judgment seat of Christ today. It happens when he comes and all men shall have their praise of. So we know from this verse, it's all at one time at some point future tense. I understand the Bible says it's appointed a man once to die and then the judgment, but there's multiple judgments. That may very well be the judgment whether you go to heaven or hell. Hebrews talking about that. When you die today, you're instantly judged. You, some will go to hell, some will go to be with the Lord. There's one judgment. But the judgment seat of Christ is the reward judgment for us. We don't have time to get into it. This word judgment seat is the Greek word bima, which is kind of like, uh, it's not a judge like a judge with a gavel. It's a judge like at the Olympics who judges to distribute awards. So it's a different kind of judgment. It is a positive judgment, but if he says you don't make the cut, you get the silver or the bronze, that's not the gold, but at least it's not hell. So there's a whole big teaching on that that I just couldn't fit into this, but some of you are familiar with that. You're nodding and smiling. So that's worth studying on your own. New Testament rewards. Our rewards are meted out in terms of authority and glory. So it's not like we get rewards and what it is is a big mansion in heaven with a whole bunch of uh, our former friends working for us. (laughs) Though that might be pretty nice. I know we have mansions in heaven. Jesus Christ said so. But truthfully, we'll rule on the earth. And it's not like we're going to be rewarded with uh, cars or horses. The Bible says it's glory and authority. The rewards the Bible speaks of are crowns and ten cities. And that speaks of the millennial kingdom. Not only will authority over cities be distributed, but crowns will also be given. This is the only allusion we have to what kind of rewards we get. Crowns. And then we have the parable that talks about 10 cities, five cities will rule the nations. So there's an authority distributed. Crowns, here's the other thing, but crowns are indicative of authority and power and glory. So these rewards we're getting, don't think about rewards like trophies. Don't think about rewards like we do as Americans, maybe a fancy retirement watch or maybe a, a money distribution or spot bonus. But these are heavenly, spiritual, glorious rewards. When we're promoted in the kingdom, we're not promoted with stuff. We're promoted with more authority. Even today, we're promoted with more glory, more anointing. That's how the Lord promotes and rewards with more of his presence. And because of that, the Bible lets us know at least, there may be more, but the New Testament, and that's all we, we have to stick with what the scriptures say, the New Testament speaks of five crowns that are given in different measures of rewards. So the five crowns of the New Testament, number one, are incorruptible crowns. 
These are given to those who strive to serve God. If every one of you strive to serve God, the Bible promises incorruptible crowns. That may be an overall general allegory, or excuse me, a general category of rewards. If you strive to serve God, you'll be given incorruptible crowns. The Bible says of Jesus Christ upon his head were many crowns, speaking of the many authorities he has. The second one the Bible speaks of is a crown of rejoicing. Uh, That's given to those who win the lost. A soul winner's crown, as it's been called. Uh, Paul said, what is this at the Lord's return? But you, you are my rejoicing. You are my crown of rejoicing at the Lord's return. Why? Because he won them. He won people to Jesus Christ. Smith Wigglesworth said, it's not how, you won't take anything to heaven. What, nothing matters in heaven but how many people you bring with you. It's not your fashion. It's not your video games. It's not your hobbies. It's not your dress up. How many people do you bring with you to heaven? That's all that matters. So there's a crown of rejoicing. There's a crown of righteousness. This is given to those who finish their race and keep the faith, looking joyful uh, for the Lord's return. That is the, the crown of righteousness. And we need to make sure we do that. That also lets me know not everybody's going to finish their race. Every one of us ought to, number one, figure out what our race is. At least figure out where the starting line is. <laughs> at least show up for the starting line. And at least continue down the trail for a little bit. You don't know where the end is. I, you know, I've run a lot of rate foot races in my life. And you have a general idea. But typically, you just follow the people in front of you. And you follow the course route. And then you can see the grandstands upon finishing. We don't always know the exact end of our life, and that's okay. It may freak us out. We can know the next 100 yards, though. We can know the next mile. We can maybe even see it. We can maybe see the course come down a mountain and have an idea. We ought to all strive to finish our race. I don't know why we wouldn't. Now, America has a race for you to run. It's called selfish. So does the devil. He pretty much runs America now. But we have a king and a kingdom that has a race for us. There's a crown of glory given to those who live as examples to the flock. And that's in 1 Peter. Every one of us ought to strive to be examples to the flock. You ought to all desire, let me be a pillar in the house of God that the rest of the flock, the new flock, can look to and aspire to be. And when you are that, you'll receive a crown of glory. Then there's a crown of life that's given to those who are faithful to Jesus Christ even unto their death. That means you're faithful and you don't back off serving God. It doesn't just mean martyrdom, but it does include martyrdom. Some Christians, they hit retirement and they don't just retire from work, they retire from God which is backwards because when you're retired, you have more income and more time to build the kingdom. Most Christians in America do less then. Because too many Christians are in America are more American than they are Christian. Amen. The young people will take care of it. Well, the young people are strong but stupid. We need the wisdom of the old people. The Bible says the strength of young, the glory of young men is their strength, but the wisdom of old men is their, their gray hair. We need the wisdom of old men and women and couple that together with the strength of, of young people. Maybe we get granny and strap her on her back and she can talk to us while we do all the lifting. Don't step over there, sonny. It'll bite you. All right, granny. Come back over here. But granny's too, too busy at home planting petunias and watching five more seasons of Matlock and Murder, she wrote. I love Angela Lansbury. I love Andy Griffith. <laughs> the tribulation. <laughs> I got... Here's another final judgment. We covered this briefly in, in some of these classes. Actually, this whole class has been about the tribulation. We have previously covered the tribulation, and this is the judgment of the Jews. The judgment seat of Christ is the judgment of Christians. The tribulation is the judgment of the Jews. 
That is what the tribulation, that's its first and foremost purpose of the tribulation is to judge the Jews. The horrific events of the tribulation will both judge Israel for her rejection of God and bring about her true repentance and we would say final and real acceptance of Jesus Christ. Israel has rejected the Godhead, the total trinity. The Bible tells us that. In Samuel's day, God says she has rejected me. So she rejected God in Samuel's day when she didn't want God to be her ruler. She wanted a king like the nations. In the days of Jesus Christ, they reject, Israel rejected the son. In the days of the early church, Stephen says you have rejected the Holy Spirit. You do always resist the Holy Spirit. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised of heart, even as your fathers did, so do you reject the Holy Spirit. Israel's rejected the entire trinity. And God's prophets have testified as much. And so the tribulation is the total final judgment of the Jews. As promised and as evidenced so many times prior, God will judge Israel by a wicked ruler. During the judgment of the tribulation, it will be the Antichrist judging Israel. Israel will, be, will repent and look to the one they pierced. And I'll fulfill a prophecy of Zechariah 12.10. They'll look upon him who they pierced. They'll finally realize, this is our Savior. We killed you 2,000 years ago. We need you. And they'll finally call out as a nation. And there's actually a prayer the Bible records that they will pray in one of the minor prophets. God will deliver them, and in that day Israel shall become a nation again in one day and fulfill Isaiah 66, 8. Then there's the judgment of the nations. This may be one of the ones I, I have never even heard of till I began this intense study. God's divine judgment continues after the battle of Armageddon. All right, so let's back up real quick. Let's, let's take a little running stab at our timeline. The church is raptured, and sometime after the rapture of the church, maybe in the air, we don't know, we have the judgment seat of Christ, and rewards are distributed. But we know this happens before we come back as the army with God because we're on white, with white robes on horses. Maybe some of you have so little works, the Lord gives you a little Shetland pony. Maybe you got the shovel behind the army. And you're shoveling, I don't know if spiritual horses need a shoveler, but that might, the Lord may just give you a shovel anyway. <laughs> then the tribulation is kicking off and Israel gets judged for seven years and it's horrific and it really intensifies the last three and a half years. Then we have the battle of Armageddon, which we covered uh, last week and you have the three battles of Basra, Jerusalem, then Armageddon, the Valley of Megiddo uh, or there Jezreel. And then that brings us to the Lord Jesus Christ touching down on the Mount of Olives and producing this wide valley supernaturally where the mountain moves to the north and moves to the south and an extremely wide valley opens up. And the Bible says this is when he judges the nations. You know, you gotta ask how many nations are left because this is after seven years of total desolation, destruction, and, and the wrath of God. The Lord will judge the nations. The Jews and the saints will be excluded from this because they've just passed through their judgment. Furthermore, the Jews are not reckoned among the nations. The Lord said so in Numbers 23.9, so they will not be judged with the nations. They're not reckoned among them. Joel 3.2 says, I will gather all nations and will bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat, which in the Hebrew means Jehovah has judged. So this is the valley where Jehovah has judged. And I will plead with them there for my people and for my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and parted my land. Now, and this, we kind of alluded to this last lesson. It's possible that the valley of Jehoshaphat will literally be the valley formed by the supernatural return of the Lord. 
Now, and some folks loosely teach this. I like it. It sounds good to me. It sounds right. But again, it's future, so we can only speculate that this is what will happen. This valley of Jehoshaphat, there is a valley right now called Jehoshaphat, but you can't fit the nations of the world in it because it's a very narrow valley. But if a supernatural one opens up right when the Lord returns, and it's right when the Lord returns that he judges the nations, and maybe that's the valley of Jehoshaphat. Zechariah 14.4 says, And in that day he will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley. Now, when the Bible says very large, I, I don't think it's like a kid's measure of very large. I ask my daughter, how much do you love me? She says, like this much, Daddy, it's a lot. You know, and it's like, you know, for her hands, it's four feet. When the Lord says this much, it's a lot bigger than man's standard. We don't know how large a very large valley is, but it's a big valley. So half the mountains will move toward the north and the other half move toward the south. So some of these eschatologists and theologians believe this is the actual valley of Jehoshaphat that he will gather the nations to, to judge them. We know for sure he will judge all the nations that are, exist after his return and he will judge them like he said in Joel. He will plead with them concerning Israel. The judgment upon which they'll be judged is not their salvation yet. It's not their good works they've done for him yet. It will be how they treated the Jews. That's what Joel says. I will plead with them there for, how, for my people and my heritage. And he says, uh, and Matthew confirms it. And listen to this, because up until I studied this, I realized we've been taught wrong. I, let me take that back. Not taught wrong, taught different. Because all scripture is open to only one interpretation, but multiple, multiple applications. You can take John 3.16, preach the salvation of God with it. You can preach giving with it. You can preach the love of man towards each other with it. Or you can teach honor and excellence with it. But there's only one interpretation for John 3.16, and that's for God so loved the world he gave his son. Right? So there's only one interpretation. That's what Peter says. For no scripture is open to any inter private interpretation. You don't have any private hidden revelation there's only one interpretation accurate but there's myriads of applications for it right uh, jesus spoke to the fig tree okay he's teaching about cursing things but we can apply that the fig tree or the mountain the mountain can be our sin the mountain can be our emotions but there's a mountain right so there's an interpretation then there's multiple applications so we've been taught multiple applications to this passage but there's only one accurate interpretation and that's what we're about to talk about. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory. Now notice this is Matthew 25. This is about all the talk of the tribulation. Matthew 24 and 25 are in sequential order of the tribulation and its judgments. So this is a continuation of the Sermon on uh, the Mount of Olivet or the Olivet Discourse where he's talking about the eschatology of end times. And they ask him, what are the signs of the times? Which shall be the sign of your coming? This, this follows up. So he says, so when the Son of Man comes in his glory, not the rapture, but the second return, and all his holy angels with him, that's the armies of God that Jude talks about, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. He's establishing his millennial kingdom. And before him shall be gathered all nations. This is the judgment of the nations that Joel speaks of, that Zechariah speaks of. And he shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. Who are the sheep? Who are the goats? They're nations. That's the context. I mean, you, you, that's the context. He gathers the nations, he'll separate them like sheep and goats. Nations. At the second return, the second advent, after he's done with Armageddon, after the Mount of Olives is divided, after he sits on his throne of glory in Jerusalem. 
He gathers the nations. Just what Joel says, what Zechariah talks about. Then shall the king say unto the, oh, excuse me. And he shall gather the sheep on his right hand and the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand. Notice he's the king because he's got a throne and he's ruling on the earth. Come, you blessed of my father. This is what he says to the sheep. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungered and you gave me meat. And I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee a hungered, and fed thee, or thirsty, and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger, and took thee in, or naked, and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick, or in prison, and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily, I say unto you, insomuch as you have done it unto one of the least of these my brothers, the Jews. Because that's what he says he'll do in Joel. He'll plead with them concerning his people and his heritage, Israel. When you've done it to the, one of these, the least of these my brothers, you've done it unto me. It appears that the church will help the Lord in this judgment. 1 Corinthians 6, 2 says, Know you not that the saints will judge the inhabitants of the earth, the world will, will judge the nations? But notice this. The nations will be judged on how they helped and treated the Lord's brethren after all these years and especially during the tribulation. This appears to be in regard to who helped the Jews in the last half of the tribulation as they fled from the wrath of the Antichrist. The help provided is very similar to the needs of refugees. Hungry, thirsty, naked, sick, imprisoned. These are all refugee symptoms. Three and a half years, the, the Jews are fleeing from Jerusalem, Judea, hiding out in the mountains, hiding out in the hills, taking cover. And the Lord, I mean, this is what Jesus said he's going to do. He's going to gather them and he's going to plead with them concerning his people. And he's going to say, you took care of my brothers, you did it unto me. You didn't take care of my brethren into eternal damnation. That's the judgment of the nations. And apparently in doing so, they have received Jesus. Now, we can't sort that out or answer that, but that's what the Bible says. The goats are those who never cared for the Lord's brethren. Evidently, they're even saved nations after the millennial reign of Christ dwelling in the earth. Revelation 21 and 22 talk about the saved nations, the nations that are saved. This lets me know that there'll be some nations after the judgment of the nations, they won't exist anymore. We don't know who they are. Maybe Pakistan never exists ever again. Today, there are nations that don't exist. You, you don't hear of Nineveh anymore. You don't hear of Persia anymore. They don't exist. You hear of Ethiopia. You hear of Egypt. You hear of Syria. You hear of Jordan. These nations still exist. Some nations, they just don't exist anymore. God just wiped them out. You can't go find Sodom and Gomorrah anymore. And after the millennial, into the millennial reign, some nations just won't even exist anymore because how they mistreated the Jews. There are some nations right now so anti-Jewish God will just wipe them out, cast the whole nation and its purpose of existence into hell. Because there are certain countries aligning to help the Jews, and there are certain countries distancing themselves, because it's just not cool. Amen. The millennial reign of Christ. We've got to keep moving here. We're, we're actually past time, but I've got another page and a half to get to you. So the millennial reign of Christ is the furthest thing out there. It actually, there's a lot on it throughout the Old Testament. We don't have time to cover it because we could literally spend a month on it. But with his enemies destroyed, the Lord will, free, will be free to establish his 1,000-year reign. He will rule from Jerusalem, and his leadership is described as such. Peaceful, 
universal, covering the whole world, authoritative, absolute authority, justice, people will get justice finally. There's not a just justice system on the planet, beginning with Tennessee and going to the federal courts and stopping at the Supreme Court of the United States. There's not a just justice system on the planet, but the Lord's reign will have justice. Merciful toward the poor, righteous, joyful, glorious, removal of the curse. Zechariah says one language, back to the Tower of Babel. One pure language. Now all tongues will come unto him, but he will establish apparently one pure language. This will be a unique season in man's history. There'll be two kinds of people on the planet, born again saints with glorified bodies, governing the world's cities, states, and nations, and then mortals living life as we currently experience it. So think about a whole species of, of humans that have glorified bodies like Jesus did after his resurrection, and then another sect or species of human beings with mortal bodies like we have right now. It'll be unique. We, we can't quite fathom it. We don't know what that'll look like. If we have bodies like Jesus, we can disappear and reappear as we want. Some of you do that every service. I, I go over here and I come back and you're gone. And then I go over here and I come back and you're back. And I don't know where you went. I don't know if you're that glorified or just really sneaky. <laughs> Humans will continue to procreate and repopulate the earth. Because there will be no curse, the population of man will increase tremendously under Christ's righteous rule. The millennia will end with Satan being unloosed to tempt mankind and fight against God one last time. He will lose. Now, the sad thing is, in this final judgment, this final battle, at the end of the thousand years, when Satan is unloosed from the abyss, it says that he will lead mankind in a final rebellion against God, against the camp of God's saints, and against the holy city. I'm going to show up and fight at Jerusalem again because he has no other battle plan. The sad thing is you'll have for a thousand years people enjoying Christ's reign and yet still choose to rebel against him at the end. Now he has to let Satan go so that this whole new thousand year generation can have a tree of the knowledge of good and evil and a tree of life. They will have enjoyed the tree of life for a thousand years and just like Adam and Eve went, duh, the Bible says a number greater than the sand of the sea will choose the knowledge of the tree of good and evil and they will perish for eternity. That is how deceptive Satan is. They will know nothing but Jesus Christ for a thousand years and the moment Satan's unleashed, a number as the sand of the sea will rebel with them. Choosing to reject the God that just served them and helped them and was merciful to them and kept them healthy and kept them from dying for a thousand years. That's just the allure of Satan, sin, and temptation. And he will destroy them. The Bible, the Bible gives half of a verse to the battle. It says, and he'll be cast down and all of them to the lake of fire. It doesn't even bother to describe the battle because fire comes down from heaven, consumes them all, and they burn for eternity. That's why we need to be thankful we serve God now. Lord, I don't know what's right with my heart, but I just want to serve you now. And you pray to keep your heart there. He will lose the great white throne of judgment. This is the final judgment of all the Bible's record. This throne of judgment is the final place of reckoning for the wicked unbeliever. This judgment will take place after the millennial reign of Christ and after the final battle with Satan. All right, so this is at the end of the millennium. Nothing, this doesn't happen until after the thousand year reign of Christ. John said, I saw a great white throne. And him that sat on it, God the Father, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. 
And there was found no place for them, heaven and the earth. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. That's the wicked dead. That's those that have died apart from God. Even if they're living, they're dead. And the books were open. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. That's the great white throne. Basically, you're judged according to your works. Some believe that means there's a measure of torment, different measures of torment that you'll suffer for eternity. One thing is, con is con concise and agreed upon. Everybody who's not in the book of life goes to the lake of fire forever. Satan is there. The Bible says death and hell are cast into there, so they're beings. I don't, I don't get that. How do you cast death and hell into the lake of fire. Abraham's bosom's in heaven, called paradise now, so I guess hell is in the lake of fire in the future. The sea, we don't really know what that is. Death and hell all give up their dead. And they're to be judged by the Father. The unsaved dead are judged according to two books, the book that records their works and the book that records whether or not they receive salvation through Jesus Christ. This is the final judgment, and it results in the second death. The first death is dying spiritually unto God. The second death is being cast into the lake of fire for eternal separation from God. This is the final and eternal resting place of the damned, forever separated from God and tormented in perpetuity. This is where Satan, his angels, the fallen angels, and all the wicked will burn forever and ever and ever and ever. What that means is right now when people die and go to hell, they're in torment, but they're not in the lake of fire. And in the future at this point, hell and torments will be cast into the lake of fire with all of its beings and burn forever. We, thank God, are born again and have no place anywhere near that. I get near campfires and I get nervous. <laughs> Because I can't imagine that forever. And of course, it'll be a spiritual burning. And Miss Susan, we talked about, we don't know what it means to have the worm that never dieth. She said, I had a thought, Pastor. I said, all right. She said, worms, what do they do? They just regurgitate the old and spit it back out again. Maybe the worm that the Bible speaks of is the eternal regret. Woulda, shoulda, coulda been born again. Woulda, shoulda, coulda served God. Just the gnawing at that, along with all the other torments, knowing that you could have. That the Lord will have, no one will have any excuse for not having received Jesus Christ. To know that forever and yet be separated from him. That may be the worm. That's a good postulation. I, we don't know. We just know there's a worm there and it never dies and it just gnaws at you. Amen. So let me read this last sentence. Those who have received salvation through Jesus Christ will enjoy eternity in his presence. Hallelujah. Amen. Glory to God. Father, I thank you for these lessons on the revelation. May these truths stick to our bones. May these lessons on judgment and eternal judgment, may they resonate in our soul. May we be mindful of everything we do for you. What sort is it? Will there be reward for it or is it our reward now? May we look to store up rewards in heaven. May we look to have eternal rewards and eternal crowns for your glory. Father, we thank you that we can judge ourselves now that we'd not be judged. We love you, Lord, and thank you. Bless these pod school lessons as they go out in the future. In Jesus' name, amen.